This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to a very special episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I am uh, flying solo today. Uh, This is Dan Newman, your co-host of the Hello Old Sports podcast. Andrew uh, will not be with us today, but I am honored to be joined by a very special guest, um, former uh, NFL center, uh, two-time Super Bowl champion, three-time NFL champion, two-time Pro Bowler with both uh, the Green Bay Packers and the Baltimore Colts, a man who You've heard interviewed elsewhere here on the Sports History Network, and I'm honored to do so again myself today. Uh, Mr. Bill Curry, thank you so much for joining me today and uh, look forward to speaking with you. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, Dan. I look forward to it, too. So uh, we won't um, we for those listeners who may not be aware, uh, most of you probably know who Bill Curry is. But for those who may not be, he played center for the Green Bay Packers for the first two years of his NFL career, including in the very first Super Bowl and then moved on to the Baltimore Colts, where he was part of some other legendary teams, legendary players, Johnny Unitas, Don Shula, Super Bowl three, uh, you name it. And we will we'll get into all of that. But, um, Mr. Curry, I think sort of the first question I wanted to ask is uh, the story of your being drafted by the Green Bay Packers is one that's well known. What was it like to be drafted in the NFL in those days in 1965? Because these days it's it's a three day extravaganza. It's it's on ESPN. It's you know the players are there. There, can you kind of contrast that a little bit with 1965? Yeah, I can contrast it. Uh, first of all, call me Bill. I'm not, not Mr. Curry. Right. Um, second, I did not know a draft was being held. That's how much publicity the NFL got in those days. And it wasn't 1965, it was 1963. It's very confusing for everybody, but I had been redshirted. And in those days, if you were drafted as a redshirt, it was in your fourth year, but you were technically a junior and the term was future. So I was drafted as a future. I had another year to play at Georgia Tech and uh, virtually nobody came out early in those days. Um, It just wasn't done. There were a couple of exceptions, but not many. So the way I found out, this is a, this is a literal, this is the truth. My phone rang early on a Sunday morning, and it was my brother-in-law, who always loves to mess with me. And I pick up the phone. I'm a junior at Georgia Tech. I've only been starting half of one year at the Georgia Institute of Technology as an offensive center. That's all, that's all I had played in the four years I had been there. And he says to me, good morning, Green Bay Packer. So I hung up on him. I mean, he's always messing with me. Ronnie Newton's his name. (laughs) Great guy. (laughs) He called me back and he said, I'm not kidding. You better look in the newspaper, buddy. You got drafted by the Packers in the 20th round last night. I said, I've never gotten a letter from the Green Bay Packers. I don't, I haven't, I don't know if Wisconsin is in the contiguous 48 states. I mean, <laughs> my gosh. So we scurried around and learned that it was the truth. And uh, we heard from the Packers and the adventure began then. And it really has gone on pretty much till now. Here we are 
my wife and I were already married at the time. We've now been married 60 years and we've been affected and we have tried to affect the sport of football and the student athletes that participate in it virtually every year since then. Georgia obviously is a ways from Wisconsin, but even by probably by that time in the, you know, the early to mid 1960s, Vince Lombardi and what he was doing in Green Bay, that was known well before you met him, before you went up there for your first training camp. Did you have any sort of preconceived notions of what Vince Lombardi was or what it would be like to play with him? Well, we were stuck in the uh, Jim Crow era uh, in the South. And there's some people are still stuck in it and they're not just in the South. Uh, um, so I had um, never thought about being on a team that had players that were African-American. I'd never thought about being on a team that had an, a Yankee New Yorker head football coach. My coach was Bobby Dodd, whose actual complete name, if you can believe it, was Robert E. Lee Dodd, a legendary coach himself, a great man and a great coach and a great academician. Forced us to go to class, and a lot of us are, most of us are deeply indebted to him for that. But Coach Lombardi had this ferocious. Uh, reputation and um, he more than lived up to it once we got there but our our moving to the Green Bay Packers contractually was one of the sort of fairy tale parts of our entire lives and uh, Carolyn describes it better than I do but um, she was sitting at my last college game which was in Athens Georgia between the hedges against the Bulldogs. And when the game ended, there was a Packer assistant coach. We didn't know he was coming. A Packer assistant coach was standing on the sidelines. His name was Red Cochran. And Red said to me, go get your wife. And ask Coach Dodd, go in the locker room, ask Coach Dodd if you can ride back to Atlanta with me instead of on the team bus. And would you and Carolyn like to fly to Dallas, Texas tomorrow morning and watch the Packers play against the Dallas Cowboys in a Sunday game at the Cotton Bowl? And it was it was like something out of um, <laughs> either out of Alfred Hitchcock or um, Grimm's fairy tales. I mean, it was somewhere in, in, in between that. But it all happened. And the next day. By the fourth quarter in the Cotton Bowl, the Packers were destroying the Cowboys, and I was standing next to Vince Lombardi on the sideline when the final gun sounded, and he said, come on, Bill, let's walk to the locker room. It was unbelievable. The whole experience was surreal, doesn't really capture it. There's a story that you've told, and you've probably told it a hundred times, maybe probably 500 times, but... I, I'm going to ask you to repeat it really quickly here. You, the story of your getting to your first uh, training camp with Lombardi is an interesting one. And you... we had something called the college all-star game at that time, which was played in Chicago and the college all-stars uh, 
practiced for three weeks at Northwestern and then played against the NFL champions from the previous year, which in this case was the uh, Cleveland Browns. So we played that game. We darn near beat the Browns. It, we had a great team. We had Dick Butkus and Gail Sayers and Roger Staubach and a lot of great players. Um, and it was really a, such a privilege to be there. But I, I had gotten a slight concussion and was flying and had a connection in those days. It was North Central Airlines. And I don't blame North Central for this, if they still existed. But um, <laughs> we got to Milwaukee where the flight was to stop and I guess refuel or something. And the uh, folks came on and said, Mr. Curry, uh, you, I'm, we're sorry, but uh, your, this, your seat has been sold for the connection to Green Bay. And I said, excuse me, you don't understand. I'm reporting to Vince Lombardi's training camp, and this is the only way I've got to get there. And I don't, I mean, I'm going to, I don't know what they would do to me if I'm, if I'm, I, I can't be late. <laughs> so they escorted me into the little, um, what was then a small airport in Milwaukee. <laughs> I asked to see the president of North Central Airlines, and they chuckled and went and got the, the manager, whoever it was, behind the desk. And he, he walks up and I, and I, and I was just desperate. Uh, and I don't normally do stuff like this, but I, I looked and carefully wrote down his name, rank and serial number. And I said, sir, I am supposed to report to Vince Lombardi's training camp at four o'clock today. I am not going to be there only because of you and your airline. And his face drained. He went pale. And I swear. <laughs> He said, he started calling people. They got my bag off the big plane. They chartered a single engine plane, flew <laughs> me to Manitowoc, where I was escorted by a North Central band and walked in 15 minutes early to Vince Lombardi's training camp. <laughs> Utterly terrified, slightly concussed, but it was one of the most, um, it was one of the most um, indescribable. I really, I really can't capture it in words. Mm-hmm. So, and just to digress here for a second, and I'll I'll mention this again when we wrap up. But in preparation, I, I've read Mister. Cur- I'm sorry, Bill's book, uh, Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle: uh, Lessons from a Football Life," which was published about I think about 15 years ago. And so, some of the stories that, that I'm drawing on are are taken from the book. So, I strongly recommend uh, to you all to to check it out. I want to just ask you about a few of the folks that were a part of that team when you got there in 1965, and you devote a whole chapter of your book to Willie Davis and sort of maybe hearkening back to something that you mentioned a few weeks ago. Willie Davis, one of the first great black stars of the Green Bay Packers defensive end in the Hall of Fame. Tell us a little bit about how that relationship with Willie Davis developed and why he was one of the the 10 men in your career that you chose to wrote chose to write about when, you know, all those years later. Well, I had several obvious issues in reporting to the Green Bay Packers. Number one, no matter how you cut it, whether I was a future or whatever, I was still a 20th round draft choice. And people to this day remind me of that. It doesn't matter at all what round you're drafted. It matters, did you make the team? That's what matters. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was my objective, obviously. I didn't care wh- wh- where I was drafted, uh, but that wasn't my biggest problem. Then there was the matter of Lombardi, 
It was just a, he, he he talked like this here. He was from the he was from the Bronx or somewhere up there, and he was a Yankee. And we weren't supposed to like Yankees, and we weren't supposed to, actually we weren't supposed to like anybody. Uh, but and I certainly was uh, put off by his manner and his brusqueness and his toughness. Uh, but he was not my biggest problem. Uh, my biggest problem is that I had never been in a huddle with an African American person. The laws in our state didn't allow us to play with the great African-American people that were all around us. We didn't see each other. It's one of the great crimes that has ever been perpetrated. So what did that mean to Bill Curry walking in that locker room at that time? Because Vince Lombardi had a lot of strong suits, but his greatest strong suit, his best attribute, and that which I believe had as much to do with his winning as his football acumen, he did not tolerate prejudice in any form, none. No prejudice against racial groups, uh, no prejudice against homosexuals, no prejudice against, no anti-Semitic stuff, nothing. If you were heard speaking like that in that locker room, you were gone the next week. And it was clear. There'll be no prejudice here. Well, I didn't. I, I thought, well, maybe I'll inadvertently say something that's racist, and I did. I did. I mean, I didn't mean to. And I thought, well, you know, they're gonna they're gonna hurt me and kill me now and send me home. But that's not what they did. Uh, led by Willie Davis, uh, first Willie approached me and said, "Bill, I think you got a chance to make our team, and I'm going to help you." I said, "You what?" You're going to help me make the team? He said, yeah. You come out there tomorrow, and um, you don't leave any regrets. He said, I, I, we played against the Eagles in our first championship game. It's the only playoff game Lombardi ever lost. They got beat by Philadelphia in the, in the world championship game, and Willie was a young player, and he didn't play well. And he said, I stood outside that stadium, and I realized that I had left regrets on the football field. And I made up my mind in that instant, that will never happen to Willie Davis again. Now, Bill, you come on our practice field tomorrow and the next day and the next, and you leave no regrets, and you just might make our team. And when you don't think you can take another minute of Ray Nitschke tearing your head off, which he did, or Lombardi screaming profanity and spitting in your face, which he did, when you don't think you can take it another minute, you come find me. I'll get you through it. I'll get you through it. Now, what is that? That is leadership. Absolutely. He didn't know the white kid from College Park, Georgia, from Adam's house camp. Changed. It didn't just change. It didn't just encourage me to make the team, which I did. It changed my life. It shaped my relationship with every teammate I ever had and every player I ever coached. So you do make the team. And you join a, an offensive line with uh, several, whether it's all pros, Hall of Famers. I think uh, for, from that, you know, you, and you were also you were sort of replacing, maybe not directly replacing, but just a few years before the center for the Packers had been another legendary player, a guy who's also in the Hall of Fame and Jim Ringo. He's gone by this point, but you still have Kramer and Greg and Thurston. Talk to me a little bit about specifically joining that offensive line and what that was like. There's so much to remember about those guys. Uh, 
just like the African-American players on that team, they welcomed me. Um, they weren't always as charitable. If I missed a snap count or something, they, they weren't sweet about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and nor should they have been. But um, here's here's where they made Yes, they were they were great guys, every single one of them. But they made the biggest impression on me as a football player and later as a coach on the first day, because we went to practice. And here's Forrest Gregg. I think he had been to nine Pro Bowls by this time. <laughs> and he's working on stance and starts. Mm-hmm. Jay Kramer is working on his pulling technique. Buzzy Thurston's working on his pass sets. Ken Bowman, the starting center, is working on getting the ball up without bobbing his head, which is a flaw I happen to have, and Ken helped me with that. Um, you lose a precious split second if you're a center and, you're, you, and you bob your head when you snap the ball. You, you don't need to do that. Uh, you would think that he would just ignore it and let me work myself out of the league, but he didn't do that. He helped me with it. But I'm watching Forrest Gregg, and he's working on stance and starts. So I walked up to him. I said, Mr. Gregg, uh, excuse me, but you've been playing football about 80 years, and you're working on stance and starts. You don't have that down yet? He said, let me tell you something, Bill. If you don't work on your fundamentals every single day, starting with your stance and your starts and your footwork, you will not survive in this league. I never forgot those words. So those guys were another, although, yes, they were intimidating. And there was an awful moment when I became a starter, when the grades were posted for the blocking grades for the games, where I had to go up and, on Tuesday morning and, and look at Greg, Skaronsky, Kramer, Thurston, and there was Curry. You can guess where I was on the list. <laughs> and, and obviously, you would know a lot more about this than I would, but and you, I think you even write about this in your book a little bit. The one who sort of gets underrated in that group is Skronsky. And I think you even write in your book that you think that Bob Skronsky belongs alongside some of the others in the Hall of Fame. Well, I believe Skronsky and Thurston would be in the Hall of Fame if it weren't that there were so many. I mean, I, don't, I guess I guess the voters look and they say, okay, you got Ringo, Greg, and Kramer. It took Jerry forever. Jerry didn't get in. Jerry Kramer didn't get in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. until about two or three years ago. And I remember we used to bump into each other at reunions and things. I'd say, do you have any idea? Is there somebody with a vendetta against you, Jerry, that's keeping you out? And he said, I can't figure it out. Nobody seems to be able to figure it out. Uh, but everybody knew he belonged in there. So finally he got in. But Skaronsky never did. And that's just, it's just wrong. He should have. And Fuzzy, I guess they couldn't put five guys from the same offensive line. Mm. Uh, last year, uh, I, and I live on the East Coast, and as does my to my father and brother. But last year, we went to um, the first Packer home game of the season against the Bears in 2022, and they they brought out. You've probably been a part of this at some point. They bring out sort of all the players from the various decades, and they closed with the 1960s. And I think there were only like two or three that were there from the 60s, but Kramer was the last, and the ovation for that player at Lambeau field when he was introduced, he's just so beloved. I feel like by the Packer community. Yeah. This is one of the few times in sport where the right guy gets the adulation. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying Jerry's perfect or anything, Mm -hmm. but he was so wonderful to me 
um, right next to Willie Davis. He would help me with, he would really help me. If I blew a snap count, he would chew me out <laughs> mm-hmm. at halftime, make sure I didn't do that again. I've thanked him many times, but um, I, I just, uh, th- th- there's another thing too, that there are key plays in NFL history that it seems like everybody remembers. And what the one that makes Jerry the most famous for all the right reasons is the block in the ice boat. I wasn't there for the ice boat. I had already been put on the expansion list and I was mm-hmm. gone to Baltimore. But um, but but Jerry and uh, Bart Starr conspired. That was supposed to be a running play and Bart turned it into a quarterback sneak and Jerry had noticed in the films earlier I think I can get under Jethro Pugh. Jethro was a, a great player, but he got a little high on the goal line, and Jerry was like a Sherman tank coming off the ball. That was his strongest suit. Um, he did confess once Once they called it, he thought, oh, gee, why did I say anything about this? <laughs> now, yep. now it's fourth down, and here we go. This is it. But I think everybody remembers that play. And they don't. Maybe they don't remember all the great blocks he threw when he was pulling, and Paul Horning and Jimmy Taylor were running for thousands of yards. And even as a first of all, somebody who was born 15 years after the ice ball, and as a, a lifelong New York Giants fan, every year I would always hope that it was the year that Jerry Kramer would get into the Hall of Fame. And even when my wife and I first started dating, and she's a big sports fan too, as listeners here know, I would always say, I would say, there's two people in sports that I really want to see get in the Hall of Fame one day. And that was Gil Hodges in baseball and Jerry Kramer in football. And they both happened within the last eight or nine years. Obviously, Kramer, thankfully, was was alive to see it. So, yeah, and, and reading his book, all of his books, but especially Instant Replay was sort of one of my first intro, first introductions to pro football history when I was, you know, 10, 11 years old. So, like I said, even as a, a younger man and as a giant fan, uh, Kramer's always spelled a uh, held a very special place in my heart. I want to um I want to move on to Baltimore in a second here, but just one more question about um about Green Bay or your years in Green Bay. You played in the first Super Bowl with the Packers against Kansas City, and I think the question that I have is did you know, did any of you know at the time what the Super Bowl would become or did it did it not have that feel yet? Did it just seem sort of like a a little exhibition at the end of the season? No, absolutely not. I mean, Carolyn and I, my Carolyn is a historian, and she studies things like gigantic football games that are supposed to be the biggest thing in the history of the world. Uh, and she's, she knows what really is important since she's also an educator. But she and I chuckled because we thought it was absurd to name a football game Super Bowl. And in fact, it was not called Super Bowl at the time we played it. Uh, and the Super Bowls did not become numerically significant until Super Bowl III, which ironically, <laughs> strangely enough, we also played in. Mm-hmm. But uh, another thing happened in Super Bowl One. I. I had to leave the game with an injury. And it was the only game all year that I had to leave with an injury. And uh, that's always really um that's always diminished that experience for me because I would love to have finished the season with my teammates. 
Ken Bowman came in, did a great job. He had been out all year with a dislocated shoulder. But um, the answer to your question is absolutely not. We had no idea it was going to be a big deal. There was even a, a rumor or, or an article or something that Roselle had, there was a little a ball that had special resiliency. It would bounce higher than other rubber balls. Mm-hmm. And it was called a super ball. And some somehow the word got out that Roselle had a super ball that he used with his dog. And that's where he got the idea for Super Bowl. I don't know if that's true, and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that it is or isn't. <laughs> we thought it was we thought it was hilarious, and if they needed to name it something, it was a little more distinctive. And we we decided that the Super Bowl uh, title would never fly. That's how smart we were. I do have to digress uh, just for a quick second here, Bill, because you, you mentioned your wife. Uh, and when I was reading uh, your book uh, over the last week or so in preparation, I couldn't help but laugh because you talked about how you were not um, not able to keep your wife, I believe, from doing things, yard work and that type of thing while she was uh, pregnant. And I um, my wife just gave birth to our son about nine months ago and I had the exact same problem. So I just kind of, uh, that made me chuckle. I was like, at least one other person has been through this with sort of the wife who, who won't take it easy, even when they're getting ready to have a baby. So, Oh my gosh, my girl, Carolyn, when she carried our children, the both, both of our children, we had two, a boy and a girl, a girl, girl first, Kristen and our, and our boy, Bill Jr. They were both very large babies when they were born and Carolyn carried them straight out in front of her. I mean, she was extremely large and she's a very small lady. <laughs> she is to this day. Mm-hmm. And she would be up on a bank planting ivy when I got home. And it didn't matter what I said to her. I could not keep her from doing it. So fortunately she survived and so did the kids. But um, there are some people that are just, she's a lot tougher than I am. <laughs> and coming from you, that says a lot, right? <laughs> well, she, it's it's uh, everybody in the family knows it. <laughs> so, um, tell our listeners a little bit. You're in the Super Bowl. You win the first Super Bowl. The team wins the first Super Bowl. How do you end up in Baltimore a year later? I thought it was a tragedy. <laughs> That's we we tend. Um, I think professional athletes, professional anything, that people that take themselves too seriously and take their jobs too seriously. Mm-hmm. And um, I certainly am guilty of that. And I think a lot of us were or are. Um, to me, when Vince Lombardi called me and said, uh, Bill, we've had to put you on the expansion list and the New Orleans Saints have claimed you, that was like the end of the world. Um, I just hung up the phone and sat down and wept. I was such a baby. Uh, that's life in the big leagues. I mean, I was on a great team. They had to put three guys up to to be uh, reviewed by the New Orleans Saints franchise. And on that team, I was certainly not among the better players. And they had so many great players. I should have understood that, but I didn't. And um, so that was that was devastating to me at the time. And um, a few weeks later, my phone rang and this voice 
claimed to be Don Shula. And I almost I almost said something smart because I thought it was one of my buddies messing with me. <laughs> they knew I was crushed and they were getting on my case big time. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be a saint, Curry? You having fun? Yeah, thanks a lot. And this this I decided I better play it straight. Well, it was Don Shula. And he said, Bill, I'm calling you because we're trying to work a deal with the new uh, New Orleans Saints team. And um, I just I, I'm, I'm considering you as a part of the package. But I want to know one thing. I know you've been a starter, but we like your special teams work. Well, Coach Dodd had made all of us learn all special teams. So sure enough, I had played on all the Packers special teams for two years. And, uh, and I love doing that. He said, we like your special teams play. And Shula was a huge special teams guy. He said, um, would you be happy coming to Baltimore just to play special teams? And my answer was this, coach, I will walk to Baltimore to play for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what happened. So in your book, you write that you feel that Shula was the best coach you ever played for. Why do you say that? And what made what made Shula so special? He was the best coach I ever played for, for me, mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. I hope I said it that way. If I didn't, I should have, because <laughs> I had other coaches that were just, just as great. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, Don Shula, um, first of all, he saw something in the special teams play that probably saved my NFL career. Then when I, I and, and the first game he allowed me to, uh, be the special teams captain. And and nobody else had special teams captains that I'm aware of. I think he was the first coach to really emphasize special teams. And so I get to walk out for the coin toss on national television. And Carolyn is flying in that week with our five-week-old baby girl. So, we, you know, we have made the team with the Baltimore Colts. So sure enough, I clip a guy right in front of our bench on an 80-yard punt return, and it's called back. Shula runs on the field, grabs me, shakes me, screaming uh, profanity that Lombardi would have been proud of. And foolishly, because he crossed the white line, he was in our territory, I screamed the same language back at him because I didn't think I had clipped the guy. So we're watching film Tuesday morning, and um, John Sandusky, the assistant coach, said, Curry, is that a clip? And I said, well, it might be. He said, well, let me make a suggestion. Next time you decide to dog cuss the head coach on national television, you be very sure that it's not a clip. You understand? (laughs) And I thought, I'm going to have a one-game career with the Baltimore Colts, and Carol and I are going to get in our car and drive back home as soon as she gets here. So I went and found him, and he took me in the equipment room. I'll never forget this, no matter how long I live. And I said, Coach, I apologize. I was wrong. I was out of line, and um, it'll never happen again. And I held my breath. He smiled. He kind of leaned toward me, and he said, I kind of like that. Just don't clip the guy. (laughs) Now, you think we played hard for him? He gave me one chance after another. What he did 
once he decided he believed in somebody, he would not give up on you. I think that, and, and he won, by the way, he won more games than any coach in, in any other coach in NFL history. And I don't think that's an accident. Once he believed in somebody, he would stick by you. And, and I, I, I'm eternally grateful. And obviously, when you get to Baltimore, you do eventually, despite sort of starting out on special teams, you end up, you know, becoming the center, uh, starting center and even make a couple of Pro Bowls and end up with, after Bart Starr, another legendary quarterback in Johnny Unitas. What was it like playing with Johnny U? Well, with either one of those guys, um, it was like stepping in the huddle with Mount Rushmore. I mean, if you if you look at pictures, I've never been to Mount Rushmore. I would love to, to do that. If you look at those pictures, you just get goosebumps. And I mean, they were when, even when I didn't know who the presidents were that were up there, mm-hmm. I knew that was supposed to be something important. And um, I felt that way about uh, these two quarterbacks, and so did everybody else in the world, even opponents. Uh, and 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 the fear factor of people having to play against them was very much an advantage to us because once you were on the field in the huddle with United or Star, at some point in the game, you began to realize, hey, we're going to win this game, and that's a great advantage. But there's another advantage that's even greater, and that is you look in the eyes of your opponent, and you can see that he knows also that he's not going to win the game because this guy's going to beat him one way or another. That's the advantage of having somebody uh, just phenomenal. And you also played with another league MVP uh, one year, and that was Earl Morrill. Morrill, who takes over for Johnny U for Unitas in 68 when Unitas gets hurt. Talk to me a little bit about maybe not even Super Bowl three, because everybody knows that story. And I'm sure you've been asked about it, you know, 5000 times. Tell me a little bit about that season and specifically about Earl Morrill sort of stepping into the breach with Unitas Hurt. Well, it was such a shocker because we had just traded for Earl. I mean, he had literally just walked into our locker room. We went to Dallas to play the Cowboys in the last exhibition game. It was 1968. We had a very good team, maybe the best team I ever played on. It um, eventually lost Super Bowl three, as you know. But um, Unitas uh, threw an ADR touchdown pass to John Mackey, the first play of the game. And we come off the field, and I ran over to him and said something, great throw or something like that. He said, my arm is killing me. Something happened. I, I, I tore my arm or something. And uh, – so the trainers, of course, grabbed him, and he had literally ripped the muscle just below the elbow. And he was out for the year. And Earl Morrow didn't even know our snap count. He didn't know the formations. He didn't know the names of the plays. He didn't know anything. And so uh, the next week, we opened in uh, Baltimore against San Francisco, and the, the huddle sounded something like this. Okay, everybody, this is Earl talking. Every Everything's all right. Hurry up, Earl. Call a play. You're going to call a delay. Just relax. Relax. Everything's under control. Whistle. Five-yard penalty. Walk it back <laughs> five yards. Okay, relax. 
Matty, what's that split back formation? Out left split like right flank, Earl. Call the play. Okay, and then he called the play. Well, somehow we managed to win that game. And somehow we managed to win 15 games that year with Earl Morrill as the most valuable player in the National Football League. That was a great football team. And uh, it's a shame that we made mistakes in the Super Bowl. And, and what happens in America, you can win all your game, but if you lose the big one, you're going to be remembered only as a loser. And that's too bad. Was the fact that you lost Super Bowl three, is it helped at all sort of in your mind looking back by the fact that you all won two years later? Because I think a lot of even sort of a lot of football fans don't realize that the Baltimore Colts, that team got its Super Bowl two years later. Did that help you all at the time? The fact that you did get one two years later? No, it didn't help me. It didn't help our offense because I boldly and probably foolishly just walked up to Carol Rosenblum, our owner, after Super Bowl three. We went to this his house for a party, and of course, it was like being in a morgue. And um, he's standing there with Burt Lancaster or somebody because they always had stars around. I mean, it was dismal. And um, just out of the blue, I said, Mr. Rosenblum, I took his hand. I looked him in the eye. I said, I promise you this. We'll be back and we'll win. And then I thought, God, what a stupid thing to do. <laughs> Why would I say a thing like that? Well, sure enough, we come back two years later. And that and the 68 team was a much better team than the 70 team. But the defense on the 70 team was just dynamite. Um, our offense struggled all year long. We had to pick and choose and find ways to find something that would work. And somehow we would manage to win. Um, we, we had some horrible losses, um, but we ended up in the Super Bowl and we ended up winning. But we turned the ball over seven times. And it was so embarrassing to be an offensive player and to have to have our defense run on the field and bail us out over and over and over. And then knucklehead Jimmy O'Brien, our little rookie kicker, mm-hmm. Jim goes up to our – we didn't know this. He goes up to Ernie Accorsi, our general manager, the day before the game. He says, well, I hope they don't need me tomorrow. And Ernie said, what do you mean? He said, I can't kick off this stuff. I can't make a field goal off this turf. I never played on stuff like that. Then he's the one that runs on the field with eight seconds left and knocks it right through the uprise. I felt so bad about our offensive performance. It almost ruined the whole thing for me and for the rest of our offense. The defense was out of this world. Mike Curtis, Ted Hendricks, Ray May. Good gosh, Bubba Smith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ask the Cowboys about those guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Bill, I just want to thank you so much for doing this. This this is truly this is truly an honor. Um, just as somebody who loves sports history and who has sort of been, I feel like I've been reading about this Packer team and you know watching old games and documentaries and everything for probably about thirty years. And so this is this is truly an honor. I'd, let me just one more time. Uh, if you all want to check out the book, and I strongly recommend you do, 10 Men You Meet in the Huddle, Lessons from a Football Life. It's, it's published by ESPN. It's it's written by our guest today, Bill Curry. Bill, thank you so much for doing this today. It was really an honor. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be on with you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Hi, everyone. Dan here. 
Just wanted to take a minute here to talk about the interview you just heard and tell you how much I enjoyed it and how gracious Mr. Bill Curry was. This really was a thrill for me. I feel like I've been reading about the Lombardi Packers for most of my life. It's one of the first sports history topics I remember really getting into as a kid, reading Gary Kramer's replay book and biographies of Vince Lombardi and watching ESPN specials going back to when I was probably about eight or nine years old. So to be able to interview one of the 60s Packers, somebody who played with Lombardi and played for Lombardi and played with all these great legends, it's really something I'll always remember. And Bill, he couldn't have been more friendly and accommodating both during the interview and our brief conversation afterwards. He thanked me for doing it and thanked me for being so prepared and for asking the questions that I did. So I'm bummed that Andrew wasn't able to join me for it, but this is one of my personal highlights from my time doing this podcast, and I hope you all enjoyed it as well. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.